You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. I was very serious about each mission being a successful mission. I knew all the statistical numbers that would give me the good odds of living through the mission, maybe not doing all the things I wanted to do. Pioneering astronaut Wally Shira. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. U.S. space program was launched, so to speak, in 1959, when the first seven astronauts, the Mercury 7, were introduced to the public. These pioneers laid the groundwork for the Gemini, Apollo, and space shuttle missions that would follow in years and decades to come. Among those first seven was a 36-year-old test pilot named Wally Shira. Over the next few years, he would become a household name, much like John Glenn, Alan Shepard, and Scott Carpenter. Finally, in 1988, Wally Shira wrote his autobiography, and that's when I had the chance to meet him. So here now from 1988, pioneering astronaut Wally Shira. What a rich period of our history you've lived through and been a part of. It was a great time, and of course, like anything, and most people deprecate what they've done, but I, I have to admit, there was the luck of the draw and timing was perfect for that, for that, that series of events that occurred. Wow, what a heady time that must have been for you. Well, I was above all that. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. I'd like to have a good, good audience there. <laughs> if I may ask you a couple of serious questions though, about your book, you bring out some very serious points and very uh, some things to, to make us think about. Uh, you, as you very correctly point out, that many people began questioning after the big successes, especially after the moon landing, why are we in space? What are we going up there for? Why are we... Sp- spending all these billions of dollars going into space. Have we yet come up with an adequate answer to that? I don't think we have. We haven't really had the direction yet. We haven't really, I don't like the word focus. I'd rather say we haven't made a commitment to staying in in space, making a presence in space, if I may. This was not a spontaneous thought. It developed as I was working on the book, thinking back, looking at what I had been doing. Why was I doing all this? In Mercury, I was just trying to get into space and get back again. In Gemini, I was doing tasks, trying to prepare man and vehicle to uh, commit to commit again to a lunar landing. Then as we did the lunar mission, I did the first Apollo mission, I said, okay, now we've got a vehicle that can stay in space, go all the way to the moon and back without any major malfunctions, so we know the crew has a vehicle that can last that long and perform very well. And we went on and did those lunar landings. But no one, and we were the performers, we were the operators, we were the ones who were working the problem. No one else, apparently, including ourselves, of course, looked ahead. What's going to happen when we go down the road? Except for one man's comment, and that was President Johnson. And he very simply said, we're just going to get rid of all this stuff eventually. I say it a little bit more succinctly in the book, but <laughs> we'll save your audience on that one or your cutting tape. But, I think, but I think most re- people in this town know how colorful Lyndon Johnson but, but could be. But it was be. a real remark, and the man yeah. was that prophetic. He was right. And we, when we got done with uh, Apollo 11, the first lunar landing, from then on, the public interest waned. It was very obvious to me. I was broadcasting then with uh, that other fellow from another network. But uh, we had trouble finding an audience. We were finding trouble getting airtime. We didn't have advertisers who wanted to buy airtime to watch astronauts doing unbelievable things on the moon. And as we got through Apollo 17, bang, we, we stopped the production. We had a few command modules left, a few boosters left, so we did Skylab. 
Uh, we did one last hands-across-the-sea mission with the Russians, the Apollo-Soyuz mission. And I recount some of that a little bit, but the point is we were trying to go on to another adventure, but we hadn't really seen that goal. Now, the goal really was to have a space station. And then the budget constraints said you can have a space station or you can have a vehicle to go there. NASA opted for the vehicle to go there, and we lost the station. Has the space shuttle turned into not a whole lot more than just a tourist vehicle? That is the way it appeared, I suspect, as we approached and finally lost it during the Challenger event. The uh, the shuttle never was designed to be a tourist vehicle. It's a high-risk thing with uh, very high-risk propulsion systems, as we know with the solid rocket boosters. But the vehicle itself has no escape route. Uh, it's not like a transport airplane where you don't have to have a parachute anymore. I can recall my early days in aviation where I'd go from one place to another to ferry to bring a air, naval aircraft back, and I would carry my personal parachute with me on a commercial transport. And people look at me, what does he know? <laughs> <laughs> well, now they're talking about carrying parachutes on the shuttle, if you notice, but uh, mm -hmm. for a very minuscule part of the flight profile of that whole vehicle. It's a waste of time carrying a parachute in a high-risk environment. To make a vehicle to carry journalists, uh, reporters, school teachers, senators, congressmen. We could make a vehicle like that, but who's going to pay for that one? The taxpayers shouldn't have to pay for a vehicle to give somebody a tourist ride. So what we have, a shuttle, was built to do scientific work, to do research and development, to carry satellites into orbit that need to have a crew there to hand-tend that satellite. But for satellites that don't need a crew around, it's ridiculous to use the shuttle for it. I would imagine it's very useful for, as it has done in the past, retrieving malfunctioning satellites. And that, that's them back. a good one. Only in that the shuttle can retrieve things in what we call low Earth orbit. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I address in the book, we need another vehicle in Earth orbit that can go up to geosynchronous orbit, which is a long way out, to retrieve those very expensive communication satellites that we depend on now and bring them back and repair them or take something up there to tweak it, maybe clear out the, uh, the very busy geosynchronous orbit now. It's becoming quite full. Everybody wants one up there. I suspect one will be going up there quite shortly on Atlantis. Are we losing the space race to the Soviet Union? Depending on you define race, uh, they have won man hours in space. I, I was absolutely flabbergasted as I went back to the end of the Gemini mission and realized how far ahead of the Russians we were. We absolutely devastated them since the day of Sputnik. Uh, we really had a, a block of time where they were grounded, essentially. They did very little. They'd had the first man in space, the first woman in space, had the first spacewalk. But we did all these things over and over again, but for the woman in space. And we'd had uh, almost five times the hours they had in space at the end of Gemini. And then we did the lunar mission. That broke their back uh, in the sense of competing with us. So the race was long over. Uh, they... Uh, they were trying to get to the moon. They weren't able to do it. They didn't have the vehicle to do it. They didn't have the technology to do it. So they made up their minds they're going to stay in this business, and they stayed in it. And they've had a commitment ever since. I was reading something just recently. The booster that launched Sputnik in 1957 is still in the inventory launching payloads into orbit. <laughs> now, we've jumped all of those things, just threw them away like an old car. And they don't do that in Russia. And that, I envy them that. I don't, I don't envy anybody living in Russia, but I do envy the commitment they've made. Now, that production line we had would very well now make some rather cheap ways of getting into space, but now we've got to invent new ones. But yet here they're just a few years away from landing on Mars. 
that seems to be a supposition, and it's uh, part of the uh, the fantasy world, I suspect, uh, which we need. We need people who are visionaries to say, man has a quest to go to Mars. I almost sound like Cronkite. <laughs> <laughs> but the point of it is that if you look at the problems involved with going to Mars and back, I, I use the word Mars and back, it's one word, like moon and back. It's not three separate words. To go to Mars and back and do a reasonably good mission on Mars would represent at least two, more likely three years. I don't know of any subsystems that will work without maintenance and repair for three years. Now, that's just the mechanical part. If you put a crew into this environment, you're talking now about subsystems that have to have valves and cranks and levers to provide air, to provide food, to provide accommodations for the human. If you send an unmanned vehicle to Mars, you can use microprocessors, chips, and all these electronic gadgets that don't need an atmosphere, that don't need valves, cranks, and levers, and food and water. And that's not too hard to do. So three years, that doesn't bother anybody. I don't care how long Pioneer's whipping around out there, a Voyager. That's, gee, there it goes. <laughs> a nice signal came back. But when you put a human in the equation, you have to worry about mankind's destiny and all that. Well... We don't know yet whether a human can in exist, if not endure, three years in this environment, what physiological changes they may have, uh, good or bad, whether they're reversible or not, such as losing calcium, losing muscular tone. Uh, these things have been reversible so far, even up to a year, as the Russians have proven. <clears throat> but imagine another one. Coming back from a three-year isolated capsule, and I'll use the word capsule, having lost all of your immunity to Earth-like diseases. What do you do with that? You've got to go through a decontamination period so you can come back and visit your Earthling friends. So there are a lot of variables we don't know about, aren't there? So if the Russians want to go do it, I would call that a kamikaze mission. And I was never of that breed. I, I was very serious about each mission being a successful mission. I knew all the statistical numbers that would give me the good odds of living through the mission, maybe not doing all the things I wanted to do. After this short break, the space project that Wally Schirra almost wishes we had undertaken instead of going to the moon. Now back to my 1988 interview with Wally Schirra. You speak of this with such passion. You still follow the space program very closely. Love it. I, I, I flipped over Buck Rogers, and I love Arthur Clarke and Asimov and Star Trek, but I don't mix those happy things, the, the fantasy worlds, and the boo 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 beep beep wah 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 stuff. <laughs> you do that very well. <laughs> I've heard enough of it on Earth. I've never heard it in space, I might add. <laughs> when you speak before crowds, there must be one or two questions that come up more than any others. One of them I just had last night. I was talking to the midshipman at the Naval Academy, one of those very great moments for me. What do I have to do to become an astronaut? What greater compliment? from these young children who are children to me now in my age group at least, but these young motivated people, they're not children of course, who want a future such as we have portrayed. They uh, they wonder if there's a military role for them. Of course there is. Uh, others who are more leaning toward academia wonder if there's a, a research role. And we need all of those inputs. At this point in time, I don't want to educate a Naval Academy midshipman to worry about the commercial role, but I'm worried about that role, uh, and that I've been in the business world for a long time. So, yes, I'm, I'm a cheerleader. I would like to see it go. I would not want to be a pioneer of a, of a dead-ended mission. 
I know a few years ago after um, all the president's men came out, everybody wanted to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. Now, after we've had the right stuff, is that causing a lot of people to say, hey, that looks kind of neat. I'd like to do that. I don't know. The firemen are getting good pay these days. <laughs> I started out wanting to be a fireman and a policeman. <laughs> I don't think I'd want the three-year mission is what I'm really trying to tell you, I guess. Mm. Uh, but I would be perfectly willing to shuttle somebody up to Earth orbit and let them go on that three-year mission. Which is Ooh, what that would we, be neat. I kind, of, I kind of push that in the book, too. I think we need this construction shack in near-Earth orbit, as we call it, low-Earth orbit, from which we can build these things and then launch to Mars and back again. In fact, uh, one of our greatest visionaries who's gone, uh, Werner von Braun, fought vociferously uh, to have an Earth orbit rendezvous. I should say Earth orbit rendezvous, and then we would go to the moon. (laughs) And if we'd had it that way, in Monday morning quarterback logic, as I have the privilege of when I go back in time to write a book, I begin to realize that that would have been a great thing to do. We might not have gone to the moon and back before the end of the decade of the 60s. That was one of the constraints we had. It was much more expeditious to go to a lunar orbit, rendezvous from coming back from the surface of the moon and returning to Earth, than it was to build a space station, which we would have had by now. By the 1970, we would have had a very big space station. Do you think most people would be shocked if they found out, if they knew that we could not today go to the moon again if, in, um, without years of, of rebuilding and retooling? I wonder. I'd like to have people know that. Uh, we've, we've lost the team that made those unbelievably great boosters that could do it. Now the Russians have a booster almost identical to it. Maybe we could borrow one of theirs. They seem to hang on. <laughs> they have offered that, I noticed. <laughs> Oddly enough, uh, they took our best knowledge on making shuttles. And they have a production line of shuttles, I've been told, not just one shuttle or two or three or four. They're not pushing their shuttle the way we did to make a manifest or a cargo. They have all their vertical launch vehicles, or we call them expendable launch vehicles, in production. So they keep on sending up flights. That's why it looks like they're ahead. Uh, they are in production. We are, we're still doing it to see what happens next. And I think at this point our vacillating leadership, and I don't mean just presidential, that's not vacillating, it's just changing. But the commitment from that office to supporting an active space station has not been made. There have been verbal comments like we must have a future, man's destiny, but we haven't really had a budget that's been pushed up the hill that says this is what you can do to spend the appropriate amount of money to build up a first-class construction shack and then ultimately a space station and carry out man's quest if it's necessary. Well, when you've got a balance of budget and you've got uh, a lot of other things that are going to have to be cut anyway, it's awfully hard to go to Congress and say, hey, let's spend money on a space station. I think we need uh, a whole new approach. Maybe we should take a good hard look at NASA. NASA grew like Topsy. It's a great old expression, but uh, we had a limited number of research stations around the country and they all monster bloomed to support the lunar mission. Then this large cadre of people said, we need some work to support this large force. It's much like, and here I am, now I'm wearing my NASA hat, but I'll wear my military hat. Forever in my military career, I've seen military bases that should have been shut down long ago. And some of the people in this town of Washington better get to work and face up to the fact that we cannot buy these toys forever. And NASA may very well have to face scrutiny and cut back and cut back with a knife, not with a wad of butter. Uh, just cut back and say, you can't have all these facilities if you're going to do these kind of things. But do not cut back on aeronautical research either or unmanned vehicles. 
But let's face up to the fact you can't have all these places and all these people in various areas doing various things. You are up to review, as the military should be up to review. Wally Sherrod died in 2007. He was 84. And you can find easy Amazon links to Wally Sherrod's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And while you're there, be sure and listen to my interview with the second man to walk on the moon, Buzz Aldrin. There were times when I wasn't that sure what great heroes we were. You know, I, right after we came back from the moon, there were demonstrations going, anti-establishment demonstrations, and they threw eggs at us. Can you believe that? And you can hear my 2000 interview with another Mercury 7 astronaut, Gordon Cooper. Finally, the president himself, LBJ, told me I was the one who ordered it confiscated, ordered it classified, that I had inadvertently filmed the runway at Area 51. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, a conversation with one of the most prolific and most influential science fiction writers of our time. My 1988 talk with Isaac Asimov. I myself, when I was 19, started writing stories about robots, realistic robots, and nowadays the robots they're beginning to build are like the very first ones I described. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.